Um, why don't we start, um, if, if that's okay? Um, and um, Marina, Leora, what tends to happen is we tend to ask people to introduce themselves because Brian's, <coughs> Brian's not very good at remembering the detail. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so let's kick off. Um, welcome, everybody, to uh, a really exciting um, podcast. Brian, I know you've arranged this one. Why don't you talk a bit about why you've arranged it and then we'll get the speakers to introduce themselves. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So as many people know, a lot of efforts have come together around COVID to get uh, data consortiums together to look at the impact of COVID in across cancer diseases or in specific cancers. And today we have uh, Drs. Horn and Garasina with us who have put together this TerraVolts consortium to look at the impact of COVID in lung cancer. And so um, we thought it'd be just a, um, a good way this data is going to be uh, presented, hopefully published soon, and we thought it'd be a good way to introduce the audience to the data, uh, which is really the largest and first of its kind in lung cancer. Leora, so Marina, would you like to introduce yourselves? So I start. Right. Uh, so I am Marina Garassino. I am the chief of the thoracic oncology at Instituto Nazionale dei Tumori in Milano. Milano is in the north of Italy and uh, is now the epicenter of uh, the Italian uh, pandemic. And Leo, do you want to introduce yourself and we'll talk about how this came together? Sure. Um, so uh, I'm uh, Leora Hohn. I'm uh, the head of the thoracic oncology program here at Vanderbilt University uh, Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, um, where luckily we actually have had a fairly low number of cancer patients and specifically lung cancer patients um, who have had a uh, diagnosis of COVID. Maybe you could kick off and just talk to me a bit about why you started the project, what you've collected, uh, and, and then maybe what it shows. So we started because I sent an email to the lung community and uh, the lung community is a very united community. We know each other very well and we always collaborate uh, together. And uh, we were just in the beginning of the pandemic in the, uh, in the middle of March. And uh, I realized that it was not just not a story of one week, but uh, it could last for a lot of times. So the majority of uh, the suggestions that came from the literature uh, suggested to delay treatments, to avoid treatments, to, uh, and to try clearly to, to avoid all the visits that we could. But uh, this could be a wonderful short-time measure, but uh, it's not a long-term measure. And at the time, I thought that we need more data from, uh, for lung cancer patients. So I sent the email and Liora answer it. <laughs> Leora, how many patients were collected and what did the do? Yeah, so the, the collection is ongoing. Um, and so, um, you know, the what we were trying to figure out, because there was a lot of fear, as Marina mentioned, coming from patients as well, um, uh, that, you know, chemotherapy is going to harm you, that immunotherapy um, if you're on a checkpoint inhibitor, that you're at higher risk of uh, mortality if you get COVID-19. And so um, it was pretty amazing. Within about a week, we came together and developed a survey. Um, and this is really collaborative. Uh, we have a steering committee 
with institutions throughout Europe um, and a couple of sites in the U.S. Um, and what we, the data that we're trying to collect was, you know, what's your gender, your smoking status, your histology. Importantly, what therapy are you on right now? Um, what, uh, when was your last therapy? And in the patients who got COVID-19, um, what happened to those patients, not only in terms of their um, mor morbidities from COVID-19, but how did that impact future lung cancer therapy? So that's what I mean by we're collecting, but we're partway through. So we actually have the first 200 patients um, that Marina is presenting um, at ACR, um, primarily from institutions in Europe. Um, and many of them are from sites in Italy that really has as Marina kept calling it, it's a war. Um, and Italy seems to be a country that's been ravaged by this war. Um, looking at right now, the data on uh, risk factors for death and a hospitalization, prolonged hospitalization from COVID-19. But with long-term, we'll have data on um, later outcomes. And, and um, it's Marina can uh, talk to the data because she's actually the person who's going to be um, can I can I just interrupt for one second? This is Brian. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how you decided on variables and the mechanics of the survey and who enters data? Just not too much. Just a little bit about the nuts and bolts, just to try and understand where the data is coming from. I mean, my and, and how you my decided. my piece around that would be: Are you focusing on inpatient or outpatient? Is it unselected registry data? How do you know you're not picking the winners or the losers? I guess. So we started to ask the, um, the, the, the hospitals uh, and the comprehensive cancer centers to include all the COVID positive patients uh, independently by the fact that they were at home in the hospital or uh, wherever. So all the COVID positive entered uh, into, into uh, the registry. So it was very important for us the support of also of the um, international societies, in particular ESMO and uh, ISLC and also ETOP, because they spread the registry. And uh, uh, now we have uh, more than 160 institutions coming wow. from uh, 21 countries uh, on every continent. So. I think that uh, this is very relevant. And these are all confirmed COVID positive cases. So we have uh, inclusion criteria with a swab positive, but uh, we included also in the registry also patients with fever, cough, okay, and uh, demonstrating uh, positive contact. Okay. Okay, so, and so do you want to maybe, maybe some of the questions that you're you were alluding to, Brian, as well is um, and Marina was explaining, we asked how was COVID suspected? So is it suspected based on their clinical radiological lab findings? Mm -hmm. And then how is it it confirmed? When you ask like how you pick the winners versus the losers um, in terms of, um, you know, knowing what we're what that what we're getting is accurate information. Right now, because it's primarily academic centers that are entering this information, we recognize you have some of the high-risk patients. You know, the patients sure. who go to academic centers probably have some more comorbidities, and sometimes we're going to treat patients where community um, yeah, likes fair to enough. not. No, but uh, as we get more I'm... data, you know, we, 
did a data cutoff at 200 patients a week ago, and we got an email yesterday from um, Jennifer Wiesenold, who's working with us from Vanderbilt on this, saying we're up to 250. So we're getting like 50 patients a week entered. Yeah. And I think we'll get some more information later on on patients with less um, comorbidities. Brian and I are itching sure. to know the results now. So, so, so uh, why don't you fire away and let us know some top line bits and pieces? Well, our results were sad, so I'm going to let Marina tell you our results. <laughs> <laughs> so the results are uh, interesting because we demonstrated that in this population that can be a particular population, as Liara said, uh, we have about 30% of uh, patients uh, dead. And the majority of patients were on treatment uh, at the time uh, of uh, COVID diagnosis. So they were patients with the possibility to live uh, for a long time. And uh, we went back to the centers with specific queries uh, and uh, the majority of these patients died for COVID-19 and not for cancer. Uh, we believe okay. that uh, in this very huge mortality, there is also the mm, difficult to the access to the intensive care units that could be present in Europe for uh, um, cultural barriers, not to, to resuscitate uh, uh, cancer patients, but also for shortages uh, of uh, ICU beds in uh, in this particular moment. Yeah, so so thirty percent is huge. It's over three times, I think, what's been reported in other series. And so you alluded that it might be due to I don't know lack of aggressive care. To to put it in one way, do you do you have granular detail on that? Do you know of the patients who died, how many were intubated or offered intubation or refused intubation? Do you have that sort of detail? Yeah, we have all the details. We know that only five patients uh, uh, received the mechanical ventilation, so a very small number. And uh, so one big point is uh, the right uh, for these patients, if they have clearly a long life expectancy, uh, to go in, uh, in uh, intensive care and to be ventilated if, if needed. I've got a, uh, I've got a question, is... if I may. So we've just done analysis of our cohort, and uh, in our hospital we have 52 positive co uh, patients, who cancer patients who are COVID positive. Um, we've done analysis, and I found out that actually they were all inpatients, um, and that's how they developed. Um, one of the questions is, how do you know that there isn't a cohort of lung cancer patients sitting on their, ho uh, their, their hands at home who are isolating, who haven't been tested or who have been tested, had symptoms and are positive, but never came to hospital? Um, is, there, is, there a, is there some knowledge of, of that issue? Is, there, is the denominator right, is my question. So we do know so, that um, in this cohort, sorry, Marina, I'm... I, no, no, sorry, go, go. Yeah, we do know that in this cohort, um, around 25% of patients were um, not hospitalized. So we do have some patients who are not hospitalized with COVID and, and managed at, at home. And what's the outcome of well, those patients, those 50 patients? Um, so for, the, for those patients, um, there were two deaths at home. Um, so you are correct, the majority of the deaths occurred in the hospital. 
what we also know is that when we asked for those other patients that were not um, sent to the ICU, what was the reason the the individuals at the different institutions got back to us said, you know, not indicated per um, institutional policies on terminal patients. Can I just so the, build on that just point having that again? Diagnosis, can I, can I be yeah. a pain? I'm being a real pain. I'm, I'm really going after this question. <laughs> so I apologize. Um, so I guess the other bias associated with that was that clearly those patients who don't come into hospital don't have severe disease and don't need to come to hospital anyway. Right. So, so separating those two cohorts almost seems unfair as well. Um, so the truth is somewhere probably between the two because 30 percent. I mean, sounds astronomically high. What about those patients who were not receiving treatment? The patients who, you know, adjuvant follow-up or post-surgery follow-up or not metastatic disease. What, what does it look like for those, that other group of patients? Because there are a large number, I guess, of lung cancer patients who have previously had treatment who must be very, who will be very concerned by this. So the deaths are among all the categories. So not just patients, uh, uh, terminal patients, but we had patients also during uh, the adjuvant treatment and also on uh, TKI and as a first line. So they are distributed and uh, it seems that there is no treatment harming uh, in this population. Uh, the point in our casistics is that we collected all this data in three weeks so the follow-up of these patients is still short. Mm -hmm. We will do other presentations with the updated follow-up because maybe some of them will be uh, will recover from COVID-19. Um, so it, it sounds like the, the biggest risk factor for mortality was sort of this lack of aggressive care and the institutional policy was not to pursue that in quote-unquote terminal patients, but as you guys know better than anybody, obviously many of these patients can live for years. So is that the message that people should be more aggressive or, or, or what's, I guess, I'm trying to take, think of the overall take home message. So I think that we need also to have the outcomes of people, of lung cancer patients who went to right. uh, the ICU and if they survive or not. So. Yeah. In principle, we think that uh, they must not be excluded before uh, just for prejudice or right. just for... Leora, can I ask you a question? Um, what sure. is your, if you had to, to th your three take-home messages from the data you've collected, what would they be? Um, so one of the, I think one of my first important messages is this fear of checkpoint inhibitors putting patients at increased risk of mortality. We don't see that in our data. So as Marina mentioned, patients on TKIs were less likely to be admitted to the hospital with the same caveat patients on immunotherapy were not more likely to die if they got COVID-19 than a lung cancer patient. The second is when you're thinking about escalating care, I think you need to look at not just the lung cancer diagnosis, but the comorbidities, because we recognize that Many of our patients come with comorbidities. Um, and so, you know, figuring out those patients who are likely to recover from their COVID diagnosis, regardless of their lung cancer um, uh, diagnosis. Um, and I think the third one is there was, you know, the most common presenting symptoms from lung cancer are those that are COVID. 
And we don't know if we can recognize COVID earlier, if we held therapy, if maybe we did something different for those patients in the short term, we could have impacted their survival. But in our database, dyspnea, cough, and fatigue were the common presenting symptoms, which are lung cancer common presenting symptoms. So we really need to look yeah. at this group of patients really carefully Marie, to figure do out you, preventive Do you think, hold on, testing. Tom, on that note, Leora, do you think that maybe lung cancer patients present to a hospital later because they just think it's from their underlying cancer? Is that, I know you probably don't have the data, but I'm just asking for your hunch. Yeah, it, it very well could be. And should we be, should we test those patients immediately with symptoms or just test our patients more often? So we're aware, but I guess until right. we have an effective therapy for COVID, I'm not sure how much it will help to know that a patient has COVID. Marina, I've got a last sure. question for you. Um, your approach. Hello. Hi, sorry, that's my fault. I got a phone call. Um, I'm not. I'm not I'm prioritise you in front of the phone call, um, which is which is not always the case with these podcasts. Um, but I do have a key question. Um, what's your advice for um, current doctors treating lung cancer patients? Should they press on with surgery? Should they press on with chemotherapy? Should they press on with treatments? Should they be isolating their patients? What's your current advice? And I'd like that advice in a sort of the post first wave of the pandemic. I know in Italy, the first wave, and in London to some extent, the first wave have been and gone. We're living in a new age where there is a risk of infection. How are you approaching your lung cancer patients in terms of treatment? So what we are doing now is to discuss case by case with the patients because uh, uh, for a period you can delay, but at a certain time you have to take a decision about the treatment. So what we are doing is to continue all the oral drugs and we are delivering all the drugs at home, which is very important. And we try to use the telemedicine as much as we can. On the other part, uh, we, I think that it's important to test these patients and to balance the risk of uh, um, becoming COVID positive to the risk of dying for lung cancer, which is very high if you don't treat these patients. Yeah, so I, I think that there is not a final recipe. You have it's a to great discuss. Answer. It's a great answer, Marina. I totally agree yeah. with you. Brian, last question. Yeah, maybe one last question. Do you have data on the status of the cancer at the time? Meaning, was it in remission? Was it stable on treatment or progressing? I would think that would impact outcome, especially in this population. We, we, we did get some information. Um, so one of the questions, if the patient died, we asked that they die from disease progression or COVID-19. And so we do know that mm -hmm. information. Um, we do have the number of lines of therapy that the patients are on, but we have to go through that to kind of see, because that's a free text answer in our database. Okay. Um, but we, we, we know when they received, when was their loss therapy. So we're assuming that because they were just, most patients had therapy within a week, that they were not progressing sure. at the time of their diagnosis. Well, this is great. I think we're running short on time. Um, it sounds like this is really just the beginning of the story. Like you say, a lot more data, a lot more follow-up. But and, it's a worrying... More granularity. But it's a worrying beginning to the story, Brian. I, Agreed. I, I think it's a worrying... I kind of assumed it would be 15% or somewhere... I mean, you know, these numbers are a bit frightening, I think. And, um, and we need to think very carefully about how we treat our cancer patients. This has been incredibly, uh, incredibly interesting. Leora, Marina, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for thanks. having us. Appreciate it.
बाय बाय